This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. So said by Dwight D. Eisenhower on the set of The Real House Husbands of Washington, D.C. Oh! How far the mighty... How far the mighty have fallen, Marie. You had such gravitas up to that point. An alert and knowledgeable citizenry. Pulitzer! Pulitzer! I think I've seen more... And then you were all like, yeah. I have definitely seen more episodes of Real Housewives of New Jersey than I have ever seen of presidential speeches. Oh my God, I love that so much. What does that say about America, Marie? Can we... Can we just talk about really fast when she flipped the table? It's when so she good. Was like you yeah! she. Oh my God, Teresa. I like how they switched. I like how they switched from uh, Judicy, which is like the way that most mm-hmm. people in like New York or, or New Jersey would say that last name to Judice to try to sound more Italian. Yes, Judice. Right, Judice. What a f- mm-hmm. what a fucking stupid stuff. Goodness, goodness <laughs> me, Marie. What was her kids' names like? They were like. Oh my God! Queen, there's like there's. There's Melania, and there's oh, that's right, there's, Melania. Gina, there's Gina Marie, and there's there's <laughs> Ashley Ashley Marie, oh and there's God. there's something else. Brittany Francesca. Lords. I'm trying to think of all the most Francesca. the most. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, we are so dear so listeners. Good. This episode, we promise, is not about the Real Housewives of New Jersey. It is about the myth, the legend, the all-encompassing conspiracy theory of the military-industrial complex. Yes. All right. <laughs> Which maybe, you know, that's that that might be how the husbands of the Real Housewives are making their money. No, it's tax evasion and pizzerias. We don't know. That's true. Well, that, that could fit in. That could fit in. Time for the Mad Scientist Podcast. This week's episode, the military-industrial complex. <laughs> so, um, why don't we why don't we start this off by saying, kind of, you know, the mm-hmm. so the military-industrial complex is an idea that really goes like it's pretty prevalent in the modern consciousness. Right. It's sort of this um, well, and it kind of means something different for we talked about it with Winchester. We did. We mentioned it in the Winchester right? Mystery House episode where um, uh, remind me, Marie, what was her what was her uh, full name? Sarah Winchester, Sarah Winchester okay. was the widow of it was the widow of um, the last surviving member of 
the Winchester rifle fortune. Right. And basically, I mean, how, how in, in, in the civil war and afterwards with Western expansion, the, um, the need for weaponry and advanced weaponry is always associated, if not right before or at the same time as war or a major skirmish. And the two are the, um, you know, the, the snake that eats its own tail, whatever that's called, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a chicken and egg. I'm going to keep going with the analogies. It's, it is basically something that doesn't have an end. Like if you get more weapons, you go to war. If you go to war, you're going to need more weapons. Right. Okay. So the, the thing you were thinking of was the Ouroboros, but, um, Ouroboros. but anyways, yes. so, so yeah, there is definitely Sorry. something to the idea of what's known as forever war, right? Which is kind of the, the mm-hmm. position that I think a lot of people think, um, the American, you know, American government took after nine 11 was, and actually why some people believe that nine 11 was perpetrated by the government or allowed to happen Um, which is in its own right, its own kind of like consecutive cyclical conspiracy theory. But um, the idea is that the, like Marie was saying, if the people in power are the ones making money off of war, then why would they ever not have us be inside of a war? Right. Why would they ever have us at peacetime? If when they're making the most money is when they're selling bullets and bombs. Yes. Now, this yes. conspiracy and when is it when is America conceived as most profitable? Right. War. Right. Now, this conspiracy theory goes back initially um, a lot farther than I think people realize. So this one actually goes back mm-hmm. all the way to um, this one goes back to actually before even the idea of uh, World War One. Right. So um, the first uh, kind of. The first mention of this idea of a. I mean, so war, war has always had people that profit off of war, right? Wars have always had people who, mm-hmm. ga- you mm-hmm. know, gouge prices and, um, you know, know that war is good for business. I mean, you know, even um, I mean, just in terms of simple economics, like if there's a war going on with a country that you trade for, say, milk or, or wheat or something, then, you know, those objects are going to go up in price in your home country. Right. And um, Mm -hmm. so this idea of someone profiteering off of war, you know, has always kind of been around, but it really wasn't until sort of war became mechanized and industrialized that really the sense of a war economy or a kind of um, like an economic driver that a few powerful individuals would want war and potentially try to cause war. It wasn't until industrialization that that really took hold. So. The first use of the idea of kind of a war economy was, um, you know, I mean, that idea. So so wars were not. They weren't terrible for economies, but they weren't as good as they are today. Right back before industrialization. Yes. And, you know, but but again, the idea of a lot of individuals was that by becoming more globalized and becoming more interconnected with other countries, we would become Basically, we would stop war, right? Because because economics would not allow war to happen then, because, you know, why if you're getting if if you if you're the happiness of your population requires, you know, a fruitful trading partnership with uh, China and Russia and Germany and whatever, then you won't you won't go to war because you would never want to stop those partnerships. Right. Mm hmm. 
But if anything, um, if anything that that has not worked, right, that was kind of the argument given right before World War One for why people thought World War One would never kick off was, well, we have, we have a global economy. It's never going to happen, whatever. Um, that hasn't happened. We've had since, you know, both world wars since that stupid statement was said. Um, and we seem to keep trying to get into them. So it's super good in that sense. But uh, the idea we're of good at finding wars, we are really good at creating. We're wars. good at finding places to have war we're in. Good at that. So in the Civil War, there was this idea of what was known as the shoddy millionaire. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where part of, I think, this conspiracy of. Um, of specific individuals profiting off of war by being unpatriotic or by, you know, f- working off of the, the men and women fighting the shoddy millionaire was a concept of basically people were selling items to the union army that were of poor quality. And so you were getting a big order in from the union army saying, you know, we need 10,000 shoes. We need 20,000 buttons, you know, coats, whatever. And then when the items were finally being delivered, it was like, you know, shoes made of cardboard and buttons, you know, whatever, buttons of coal or something. I have no idea. Santa Claus or something. So Frosty the Snowman, sorry. Um, right. And so there was this myth around at the time that there were people who made their money by uh, basically giving the Union soldiers terrible items that were of no use. Right. And since yes. that point, yes. um, this idea has kind of morphed away from people uh, giving kind of on purpose, poor treatment or poor items and instead morphed into people selling items at such an exorbitant price for what they're worth that they're making so much money off the government being in war. Right. So a single war plane, you know, that costs whatever, $200,000 to make, you can sell for $500,000 or a, or a billion dollars or whatever. Right, or a million dollars, or not a billion, a million dollars. Like, that's the kind of scope yes. or scale of the of the con that people think is occurring here, right? Yes. So um, yes. Besides, besides the natural drive, right? The natural drive to create weaponry, which I think is sort of the seed, right? Like, if you are planning on attacking another population, like we were talking about in Civil War and in in Winchester, you have to come up with the most proficient way of doing that. Yeah. And there's always the next bigger and better weapon or the next bigger and better invention. And that sort of that um, innovation gets geared towards weaponry and gets also geared towards cost. Sure. Absolutely. Right? Cause you're never, you are always going to want your, your troops to have that. And it's an also what I think is especially insidious is it is a very, um, palatable patriotic uh spend right you can sell it very easily by saying well we have to have this type of military spending because you want your troops to have the ba 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 you want mm-hmm. you know to protect your but that's not necessarily always the case of what's the actuality is happening it's more almost like some propaganda sure absolutely yeah well it is i mean it's Again, it's it's actually mm-hmm. almost sort of the feeling of like as opposed to the shoddy millionaire now or the shoddy. Yeah, the shoddy millionaire. Now you have the shoddy politician. Right. Why don't you want to support the troops with X yes. amount more money? Right. Um, yeah. Or, you know, why don't you know, why don't you support the troops? Well, I do. But, shoddy, you know, the lobbyists. Right. Yes, right. Right. Shoddy, shoddy lobbyists. Shoddy lobbyists. Yes. So military. So what is so what is military industrial complex? 
like what does it actually mean and what is it well yeah I, i think it's like i've always first of all i was really surprised to learn that it was it came from eisenhower because when i think of eisenhower i think of someone who is very much a pro-military uh, staunch republican pro-military war hero but i think people that are pro-military and that actually have engaged in combat probably are the ones that would be the most against perpetual war yeah so too. No, for sure. I'm, I mean, yeah, that makes total sense to me, right? I mean, every uh, every veteran I've ever met has been, you know, very realistic about their experience and kind of the sacrifice that they make. You know what I mean? And kind of what it means to ask someone yes. else to make that same sacrifice. Like, you know, I, I don't think anyone leaves. Uh, I don't think anyone leaves from the battlefield raring really to go back. Right. Um, some people are, 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 you know, I mean, damaged irreparably right from their time there. So it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge problem. It's a huge deal to think about, well, perpetual war for the sake of like a hundred, 200 people, right. With the expense that it makes to, to thousands. So in some ways, so for me, so first off, let's get to that initial, uh, that initial thing you just said, the term actually originally Mm -hmm. did not come. So it's most famously said by Eisenhower in his speech um, in 1961, in his farewell address, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is where it's most well known. However, the term, first of all, the idea kind of floated around for a long time. The term really first was used in academic writing in 1947, right? Where it was used by hmm. um, the economist and diplomat Winfeld W. Reifler. Right. He, he was writing a paper or, or a, kind of a, a piece in foreign affairs um, in 47. And he talks about how industrial output plays a major role in how how a war goes, basically, like who will win the war or not. And he says that there is mm-hmm. a uh, he says that there has to be a intersection between the military economy and the civilian economy for there to really be kind of a, a good, a good outcome to war. And he specifically calls that the military industrial complex Hmm. right now. The, the idea though, but even that, like even that kind of gives it almost too much power to uh, this one, I guess sort of uh, saying, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the idea again was used, but it was applied to uh, fascism, right? Ah, so mm-hmm. um, after World War, uh, after World War II, um, it was really talked about a lot in Europe by a lot of philosophers and economists and stuff. Where they talked about things like, you know, the um, what's the word? Where they talk about the uh, the military industrial complex and um, its effects on kind of these fascist economies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. in particular, um, Daniel Guerin um, in 36 in fascism and big business talks about how uh, fascist governments need to support heavy industry and have heavy industry support them as well. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then in particular, the creation of weaponry is a good source for this. Right. Because it's something that's only usable really by the government itself. So it helps build them up while also kind of putting money back into the government in some ways. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then it's also brought up again in 1942 in a Franz Leopold Neumann's book, Behemoth, the structure and practice of national socialism, 
where he talks about how uh, he talks about how Nazism grew in a democratic state. Running again talks mm-hmm. about this intersection between um, military and in industry and kind of the power of the government itself as well. So um, so that's kind of where the term. So there are these ideas floating around. Fascism really has a big impact on this idea as well. And then, uh, you know, 47, it's really starting to be talked about in academic circles in the U.S. And then uh, 60, uh, 67, Eisenhower specifically warns about it in his farewell address. So yeah. like a pretty. If it was much, much of a part of like the American vernacular or it wouldn't have been really necessarily. It, it likely, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's hard to guess. Sorry. And that Eisenhower speech was in 61. There's a lot of sevens yeah. floating around. 1961, mm-hmm. Eisenhower gave his farewell address. Um, there's a lot of like, so it seems like it seems unlikely. Like, so in this yeah. article that we have here from James Ledbetter, he actually talks about how it's it's probably likely that Eisenhower or someone in his circle actually had read that article in national uh, in Nash in foreign affairs, rather. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's likely that it kind of became part of, say, like the academic, political, uh, military world. Right. Yeah. And it started getting put in. And so just people started saying it. You know, it's yeah, kind of it's, like it's, uh, it's like kind of like discourse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, like the, any other kind yeah. of jargon. Right. Yes. Yes. Now, for me personally, I would say that the what the military industrial complex means. It is almost. It's so a lot of. First off, well, Marie, what does it mean for you? Because actually, I think my answer is going to be a lot different than yours. I think it is the intersection between private industry and government foreign affairs interest, right? So if I think of, like, if I had to name industries that I feel are heavily engaged in sort of the the military complex, like Raytheon or Halliburton or sort of these larger... um, these larger publicly traded industries that have, uh, I don't want to say insidious because, you know, lobbyists aren't all insidious, but have a definite reach into influencing um, their stock price directly with, directly with our government. Sure. Right. And, but, but at the same time, there's a need for it, right? There's, it's not, you know, it's not a, um, it's not an unnecessary, it's not an unnecessary thing, but it is, it's very hard to find sort of this balance between those two things, right? Because you can't, that's, it's the intersection of those, of private to government, but you have to have that to be able to, to be able to support your military. But what is the proper, like, where does that stop? When do you, you know, there's, I think, a lot of intangibles that go along with that. Sure. So. What is it to you? So, to, so okay. To me, the military industrial complex, actually, it's not just the intersection between government and uh, government and industry. Mm-hmm. It is the intersection between government, industry and Uh, science in some ways because a huge amount of scientific research is funded 
yeah. by what would be considered like the military industrial complex. Yes. Right. Yes. So I mean, especially so, science and technology. Yes. Yeah. So Agreed. like, totally you know, agree. so some of my research we applied to like Department of Defense grants for. Mm, we didn't get part, them, but we applied for them. So you, you know are I mean? part of the problem. <laughs> we didn't get them. <laughs> I, uh-huh. I wish we had, but we didn't yeah, get them. Yeah, you have public, yeah, um, you know, plausible denial. Right, right? We it's didn't, perfect. We didn't get them. We're not working for the government. <laughs> Gonna hide my CIA shill badge here underneath my uh, underneath my shirt. The, um, like, so what- Your handler I, is now mobilizing. They're like, go, swarm, swarm. Get him. Extraction. The the kind of, I guess, the pipeline for these ideas tends to go something like, so you're you're a scientist in grad school. Your professor has some project you're working on and you want to apply for it. And so you, something, well, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. see, that's the thing though. It's never something as obvious as a death ray, right? Right. It's it's like a laser, it's like a laser guidance system or a new Mm -hmm. computer program for geolocating stuff or- um, you know, a new type of chemistry, right? Like it's yes. never, ever, no one ever gets a PhD in making a bomb. That's right? what I think that's a famous Oppenheimer quote, isn't it? I don't know, actually. <laughs> right. No, but you never set a. you never, you know, you never go into the sciences thinking, yeah, whatever, whatever I'm, I'm using is going to end up wiping out part of humanity. You think it's going to, you're doing it for good. You're doing it for, right. for discovery, which yeah. is, in, which is. You know, like, yes, I agree with you. Absolutely. So it might be something as benign as like, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a glitter replacement for whatever, whatever, you know, like. Right, right, right. Non-toxic glitter for kids. Well, it's, it's something very specific, right? Like science always Mm -hmm. happens at these high levels with very specific answers to problems that you don't realize the applications for necessarily. Right now. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, uh, what, what will happen usually Hmm. is then your, your, your project, whatever you might apply for a grant to the government or whatever, and they'll say, you know, okay, well, to apply for this, it has to have some bearing, some application to either national defense or uh, energy or the pr- the preservation of the United States, let's say. Yes. Right? So yes. you apply for the grant, and if they decide that it's, it's, yeah, you're good, your science looks good on its merits and everything, then you'll get the funding. But once, so once you graduate, the question then becomes, well, what do you do with your research and a lot of people will try to get in work in government labs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is awesome. Like mm-hmm. working in a government lab mm-hmm. kicks butt based mm-hmm. on like Livermore, Livermore labs. Out seriously. Here, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Right. They're, mm-hmm. they're super cool. They're super smart. These are the people that are going to save the world. Right. Or blow um, it up. Well, but you, you know what I mean? Like these are the Six people one, that are half dozen of another. These yeah. are the people that are making the advancements of yes. the next generation. Right. Yes. And so, but what, can happen potentially is you know your project gets worked on and it's interesting and whatever but its applications are part of uh, a dod grant or you know you're working with a government contractor or something else and so it's by kind of in like not insidiously again but kind of by uh spreading out its influence with money and stuff that the government um the military specifically is able to then fund fundamental science and then use that fundamental science for weaponry technology yeah. Right. Now so we're, has, has now this we're, ever happened to you? Like, or like, do you feel that there's a certain point when you are as a scientist, as an actual working scientist that knows other actual working scientists, is there a certain point in your process of discovery that you've gone through stuff and you're like, Oh, Holy shit. Like 
this could be used as that and you get freaked out. Like, I'm just I mean, wondering if there's like moments of realization that you're like, this may not be a good idea or this could, this actually could be applied as this. See, it's, ne- it, but no one ever makes a discovery. You So usually people don't make mm-hmm. discoveries as kind of, um, what's the world? What's the word? As dramatic, like, like as dramatic as okay. you would in a movie. Right. So it's not like, uh, it's not like, you know, my, my killing me, my, uh, my experiment ran. Okay. And I was like, oh my God, this, you know, this stuff, uh, stuff's mutating my DNA, whatever. Right. Like, but I guarantee there have been times where say, um, someone will be researching, say a cure for cancer or something or a new type of drug. And they Uh find out that actually this stuff is super toxic. And so it's a very uh, useful chemical weapon or bioweapon, right? Yes. And or, then the Russians show up. Yep. Or, you know, um, yeah. or even, you know, a new type of explosive or um, even, you know, the materials that I worked with, like they're, yes. they're shielding, right? They are heat and radiation shielding is one of their, one of their applications. And so potentially that has military applications, right? I mean, um, for space travel, for even, you know, uh, armor yeah. uh, for soldiers, like, yeah. so there, but here's the thing, though, right? Uh, in my mind, so the, and I think this is where potentially there will be some slack, maybe from or or, or I don't know how many people will be happy or mad about this idea, <laughs> but like for Sweet. me, but for me personally, like mm-hmm. that's why I kind of view, I view almost scientific work as being patriotic in a sense because you are benefiting this country in some way you're benefiting the world that's kind of where you want your your science to go right Mm -hmm. but in some ways by doing research in the united states you are contributing to the united states and maybe that is in itself a kind of fetishization of the military industrial complex where the only reason i think that it's you know um the only reason that we look at those people that made the atomic bombs and stuff as heroes um some people anyways is because They work this, for us. Right, right. You know, they're the only the only difference between a hero and a monster is whose side they're on. Right? Exactly. Yes. So um agreed. Agreed. And, and so it's interesting, I think, that I think for a lot of people, the military industrial complex means like, you know, people like Tony Stark selling weapons and stuff like that, whatever. Oh, but really, yes. it is a much more complicated thing. Like I'm not and I'm not trying to say that, you know, science generally is implicated or anything, but just that the public uh, funding of science makes this whole question a lot more muddy or a lot more, a lot more dirty than I think people want it to be. Well, right? and I think, yeah, I think especially as we, uh, United States branches out in what they feel is warfare. I mean, cyber war, right. You can, you can yeah. be a, st- you can be a state, uh, a, um, a state actioned attack like Stuxnet or something like that. I mean, that to me is, has as much potential as um, as any kind of a bomber. It's got the same, you know, you're, it's a different, it's a different recipe, but it, it, it could be utilized in the same way or it will be utilized in the same way. I don't know. I feel like the one thing that is always interesting to me with, with science and sort of when you get into this, into this, um, into this equation of like where, where the usage usage is, is, Kind of what is the ethics behind that? Because, I mean, you also, I feel like, have a responsibility to that what you are ushering in is not 
you know, is not going to be um, misused. It's, well, it, it, it will probably always be misused, but it may not be like, like artificial intelligence and in, as the most extreme example, right? Like I think that there is a huge potential for, for something like that to actually be a, a, a game ender for humanity. So do you, what is the ethical impl- implications of experimenting with it, bringing it into any kind of networked system, being able to understand what it does. And then what is your obligation to it as a sentient or becoming sentient and to humanity, right? So what are the ethics behind that? And I think that's again, a very extreme example, but I think you have a responsibility to not be um, Frankenstein, right? So the, so the challenge I think for a lot of scientists mm-hmm. or for a lot of people who are part of this kind of research environment, right? Cause like mm-hmm. there are good, there are very, very good, very, uh, very honorable, very moral scientists and engineers and stuff working for companies like Raytheon, right? Of course. Who yes. are working on things that are, you know, um, working on things that are, you know, potentially used in, in weaponry or laser guidance systems or whatever. Right. Laser, now, yes. In my mind, the that is actually kind of the interesting question between what is what is science and what is engineering, and then therefore what are the ethics of science versus what are the ethics of engineering, right? Because so for me, at least in my view, science is sort of the um, science is sort of the the study of the study of fundamental nature, mm-hmm. and engineering is the application of science to the world for economic gain, right? Like, so, cause, cause engineering, like, no, but really though, like, you like, know? you know, like engineering, you sir. you, sir, that was good. That was very, very good. No, like, I agree with you. I mean, I see where you're, I see where you're going with this. Yes. Yeah. For like, you know, so engineering is not about, you know, you're not, even though I did PhD research in engineering, mm-hmm. part of my PhD thesis was, well, how, you know, this has to become at least close to marketable. Right. This has to be used eventually. How can we use this in an industrial process to solve this problem? And how do we sell it to companies and whatever? And so science on its own, like the the discovery of radioactivity or nuclear uh, nuclear, you know, nuclear fission Mm -hmm. is not on its own right or wrong or evil or good. Right. It's the application of that in order to make money in some way that is, that can be moral or immoral. If we even want to go there, like, I don't even know if I don't even, there are some people who wouldn't even say that who would say rather that, um, you know, I mean, morality has different meanings to different people. Right. So, I mean, agreed, um, you know, someone, someone who is subjective reality, right. Someone who is a total kind of uh, selfish, uh, there's like an actual term for this kind of, philosophy of morality, but Oh, it's somewhat- situational morale. Uh, situ- oh, come on. I knew this. Cause you actually said this to me the other day. Is situational morality. It's not. Re- it? No, 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 no. Like what, is that? what I was going to, so relativism kind of goes into this, yeah. but, but the idea that mm-hmm. someone believes that morals are only true for you yourself. And so, so long as you mm-hmm. are not doing harm to you, you, you know, so, so morals are self-interested basically is what this mm-hmm. person's argument mm-hmm. would be. And so for them, Nothing you do is really, as long as it's not hurting you, nothing is really off the table, right? Well, the name for that is just asshole. 
total <laughs> butthead. So just, he's just such a dillweed. That's a dillweed move. That's dude. a dill, a dillweed so, move. But no, I get what you're saying, but like, I, I feel like those two things are more like so. Science and engineering are probably very interconnected because well, the engineer would not have would not have the thought or the um, the spark behind how they're going to apply that application without the science, right? So right. sort of like the, I think that it's, I would not say it's a, I would not say it's a cop-out, but I do think it's, it's this sort of like, cause they could say it the other way. They could say, well, you know, we're only, we're only as an engineer, I'm only taking it into its logical application, right? Mm -hmm. This is logically what the science is meant to do. Like if you put, you know, again, with, with fission, you know, if you're going to split the atom and it's going to have this type of a, a reaction, that type of reaction is, is violent and destructive. That's a bomb. True. But again, I guess the, the argument would be the argument I think would be you as a scientist mm -hmm. do not necessarily know what your technology will be used for. So it becomes almost a question of like, I mean, it's almost kind of an ends justify the means thing or not really that mm -hmm. it's sort of a argument of like, you know, argument from uh, argument from that is a little bit of a, the Frankenstein argument, though. Yes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Did, did, you, that, did you read that? Did you read that book? I did. I did read Frankenstein. That's one of the few Sweet. I did read uh, a couple <laughs> times. Yeah, no, for sure. That is the Frankenstein argument where it's like, you know, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't know it would go this way. Right. I, I didn't did, know. Right. My but, intention was pure. I am scientifically trying to create life and that's it. But then that thing wakes up and looks at you and it is now your responsibility. It's rough right? stuff. So some of I love so, the fact that Des, by the way, um, Des, our 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 um, website maven and the the only person that's keeping us pretty much afloat, pretty much just like fills in all of the cracks at yes. Mad Scientist HQ. She, she is she is the spackle that kind of keeps the kind of keeps our that ke keeps our little boat afloat, and she is super creative. She's an English teacher. I don't know how I didn't know this before because I was like, oh my god. Like, are you hearing these things? And I'll be like, well, it's like that time and blah, blah, blah. And Cox, it's now like a running joke. You're like, nah, didn't read that one either. Nope. And it's like, are you, are we making you cringe? And he's like, no, it's fine. I'm like, oh God, love I know, you. I feel so bad. I, I, I am the student I that I'm you, sure English he hates. I love you English teachers. Um, like, I, I didn't really study the classics either. And I'm like, oh, sh stop it. Yeah, I know. You're seriously. English teacher, man. I love I was stuff. I was looking at a list the other day, not to get too far off track. I was looking at a list the other day of the top hundred books in English on like a time <laughs> list or whatever. <laughs> and like half of them I had been assigned in school and I never read. <laughs> I was like, I think I I think I have soft covers of all these floating around someplace that I you know I, I had to buy for the summer reading thing and I never did. Um Ooh, I love that. But anyways, like, I mean but again, here here is a good success story. No, you didn't you didn't do that stuff, but still still ended up on your feet. Right? You hear that, kids? Don't do your homework. Don't yeah. Don't go to school. <laughs> don't, don't stay in school. Don't stay Play in school. video no, games at home. Um. Okay. So. So actually, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to run through what what do you think? So, what do you think? This this conspiracy theory, this idea. So we really haven't, I guess we really haven't oh, touched on the conspiracy yes. theories yet. We've kind of gone over yeah. the history. This yeah. idea really, it's interesting because it has sort of a twofold, uh -huh. depending on what side of the political spectrum you sit on, yeah. it has, uh, it has kind of 
double meanings, right? Yes. So, and this is kind of our, like, you know, this is kind of, it's interesting because it's sort of a litmus test almost for how you view the world and America's place in it, right? So you have on the kind of, uh, on the liberal side, let's say, or the more, uh, you know, yeah, the liberal side, you have the idea of this, this great, uh, this great beast that it's, it's, you know, Congress and mm-hmm. industry and the military all working together, all shaking hands and giving mm-hmm. each other sacks of money, mm-hmm. selling out us, putting us in a war forever war and, uh, you know, never getting in trouble for it. Always having a bad excuse for war, but always still sending us over there. Right. On the other side you have. And so that's the kind of stuff that gets thrown at people like, right. um, you know, I mean, Bush and, and, uh, you know, uh, both Bushes really, you know, yeah. um, at Reagan at, uh, all uh, busy Republicans yeah. generally. Yes. And then you have the other side of it, which is the military industrial complex is working basically to install a dictatorship in the United States. And so the idea is that, um, so as opposed to it being kind of a like fascist dictatorship where there's still kind of like token uh, democracy in some way, but it's the rich that really control everything and the rich mm-hmm. get rich by killing other people and American citizens with forever war. On the other side, you have this idea of, um, you know, they're building up the military and creating these more and more uh insidious and finally the first time we can use the word insidious in this episode um <laughs> legitimately these yeah. more and more insidious and uh kind of terrifying weaponry that will eventually be turned on the citizens yes right? i think this is my if we're if i think what we're talking about this is my favorite sort of my my favorite theory of, really of this whole thing the so iron this, triangle yeah yeah I the iron it. triangle so this gets this gets put on to people like you know um obama and uh the you know clintons and uh you know jimmy carter to some lesser extent mm-hmm. i guess you know much uh, lesser but those yes. peanuts they're poisoned yes. but anyways then the idea is here but he was that, only a one-termer too see so that's true that clue, just saying so what's interesting with this is then it also gets brought into the whole idea of ufo technology Right. Mm, So this mm -hmm. conspiracy goes even deeper in some people's minds to not only is the military uh, creating these weapons so that we will be in a forever war, but actually it's not even just the U.S. military. It is the world. It is a a cabal of globalists uh, who are working in the shadows with alien weaponry and technology to subvert and control humanity eventually. So all of the mm-hmm. wars, all of the military uh, excursions, everything, all of the money flows mm-hmm. through this military industrial complex that is the globalist cabal. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Right? Yes, 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 yes. So it's a really interesting conspiracy theory because it really is like something for everybody. 
Yes. You know, and if you're going to have a conspiracy theory, people, I'm just going to put this out there. You have to have a solid uh, monker for it, right? You have to have a good name. And the Iron Triangle is a really, that's something you're going to remember. Yeah. Just, you know. So as you go forward, you know, putting together your conspiracy theories, make sure, you know, I wish, I almost wish, you, you know, there was that a total, I'm going down a rabbit hole really fast. Do you remember online a while ago there was that Wu-Tang Clan name generator? Of course. It's how Glover got his, you know, got Childish Gambino. I almost feel like we need something like that for conspiracy theories, right? Like the Iron Triangle, boom, something like that. Oh, like maybe two or three words. Yeah, yeah. You have have a Wu-Tang Clan generator for that. See, my favorite thing is for like philosophical papers on critique Mm -hmm. of like politics and society, Mm -hmm. you just throw the word modernity in as many times as you can and see if it sticks, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to see like uh, the post, the post industrial simulacrum, the post industrial metaphysics of, of the is ought problem uh, (laughs) comments on modernity. Right. Perfect. That is the name of a PhD thesis in philosophy that gets passed every single time. You know, that's true. Anyways, I like that. So, okay. So we have this, so we have this conspiracy theory that's kind of ranging all over the place and stuff. Yes. How true are some of those ideas? Uh, Well, I think so. (laughs) I think you definitely, So I don't think I don't think anything is as um, organized or as uh, linear as Iron Triangle would have us believe. Like one hand cleanly, you know, shakes the other. So why don't don't you for the 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 listeners for the listeners, why don't you explain kind of the Iron Triangle idea? I mean, it's kind of what we've been talking about the whole time, but let's give them like a clear definition. Basically, it's the idea that you have all of these all of these. Any point of government is working towards keeping this, keeping the military complex afloat. So you have Congress, Congress is, they're funding, they're, they're driving funding and political support, right? Which is driving this bureaucracy that is creating more special interest groups to push towards lower regulation and special favors. And then the special interest groups in turn provide electoral supports for Congress and presidents, right? So it's sort of like you have this, you have this, this, again, snake that eats its own tail. I've already forgotten its name because I was so in love with the Iron Triangle. So you're going to remember that. Ouroboros. You're going to remember that, people. The Ouroboros, right? You have this, this sort of, this, this almost hermetically sealed organism that self-propagates itself. Mm, okay. It's how I look at it. Like one hand, again, one hand shakes the other. You have congressional lobby support and can go in a a special interest group. It can go the other way. Special interest groups will support and lobby for, you know, for a certain type of bureaucracy and those choices and execution then are executed by Congress who then are lenient also for interest groups. Sure. Okay. So, so your, so your view kind of is that, so, so I would say, I think kind of, it's clear that some of that, that some of that is just corruption, right? Grift. Yeah. Yes. Some of it is just grift, right? This is just, just grafting grifters and whatever. Some of it is just swamp drainage. Yeah. And like, that. and that's definitely, that's definitely a big issue in politics. Right. I would say, um, yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, so some of that does obviously happen. But I think it's the idea that there is a oversight like power mm-hmm. controlling all of that kind of movement around that is the area where it gets into deeper, darker conspiracy, right? Yes. And that's it's, that's the beauty yeah. of this is that there is a kernel of truth here, right, in some sense. So Yeah. I don't know. Actually, I look at Dick Cheney and I'm like, eh, I'm kind of buying in, right? You see Dick be, Cheney. Could be a and, lizard. Eh, but I mean, seriously, if you do think about like, and this is as far as I'll go with like, seriously, considering a conspiracy theory is, you know, with the sort of validation, but you have someone who has some deep trenches to Halliburton and to, uh, and to sort of privatizing war in some ways, which is sure. also another part of it as you know, vice president and as vice president, again, not directly making the decisions, but being heavily influent, heavily influential into a war that is, again, has a faulty groundwork for for proof as to why we went into it. So even if that isn't even if that has a lot of flaws, I think that that type of that type of mixture is perfect, perfect for this type of conspiracy. Because, I mean, sure. I, I look at that as a rational person. I'm like, oh, hells yeah. And he's no, a yeah. lizard person, man. And he's, oh, a lizard he's person. such a lizard okay. person. If we look, if we look at... He, he so, shot someone in the face, man. He did shoot someone and get away with That is... So, that is so uh, So here's the thing, okay. right? If you look at, if you look at U.S. military outlays, mm-hmm. um, adjusted for inflation in billions okay. of dollars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Since uh, World War II... The highest they have been adjusted for inflation since World War II is at World War II, right? So at four, you know, uh, 1945, it was kind of the highest it was at just a squeak above 900 billion. So what is this accounting for? Wait, this is military. So this is military spending. Okay. 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 So mm-hmm. it was like 900 billion in 1945. Yes. It then dropped off back down to like 100 billion. Mm hmm. Right after World War II. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right? Which, yeah. And now remember, too, the United States, when it was first founded, did not have a standing military. Right? We didn't yes. have defense spending at the, at the level that we have it today because well, we did yes. not have a standing army. We didn't have a central treasury. No. Well, that too. But right? we didn't you know, have like, a way to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, we, we didn't have a military until, um, I don't think we had a military until uh, after World War One, Right? Um, like a, like the same the idea of a military that we have today in any sense, right? Now, yeah, thereabouts, yeah. So after World War II, we had this post-war period where spending went down, and then within ten years, it had spiked back up to uh, averaging between five hundred and four hundred billion, um, basically until the modern day. But I think it's safe. It's interesting to also point out for that military spending. It is nine times more, at least, than anyone else, right? I mean, basically, it's, it's we're significantly like half, more. So we're, we're half so, the pie. Yeah, no. So we're going to get into that, right? So, mm, but okay. the interesting thing here is that the post, so after war, so even after mm-hmm. the uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, there were again these kind of relaxations in military spending, mm-hmm. but the the degree of the relaxation was significantly different than it was after World War II. Right. So in some ways, it's like, well, maybe it's because of just the scale of World War Two and, you know, the whatever. But, yeah, you know, really, uh, yeah. like 
Um, it's, what, it's did, what did they high. introduce? What did they introduce in World War II that was totally different from any other warfare? The bomb. Yeah, absolutely. The bomb. Right? Yeah. So it's like that to me is like that's the game changer. That's true. Military that's a good. Spending. That's a very very good point. It's a very good point. Right. Um, but kind of. So for me though, what's interesting is that the the drop off between actual war, like in the Cold War, it sort of makes sense, right? We were mm-hmm. still having this arms race with Russia, whatever. But actually, we are spending more today than we did throughout any point in the Cold War. Hmm. We're inching closer mm-hmm. to uh, we're so we're at around six hundred billion now. So mm-hmm. we're inching closer to that World War II value, right? So right now, the United States, um, right now, the United States, this is from two thousand fifteen, spends mm-hmm. five hundred ninety-eight point five billion dollars a year on the military. That's fifty-four percent of all of our discretionary spending. OK, now let's let's look at that based on some other numbers. Education is six percent. Uh, Medicare and health, six percent. Veterans benefits, six percent. Which is painful. Um, That's so. Yeah. Keep science, three percent. Social Security, unemployment and labor, three percent. Um, food and agriculture, one percent. So this and that's not all. Infrastructure is like point five. Oh yeah. The infrastructure is not even big enough to be on the list. No. Right. So, sad. so, yeah. um, so that's, that's significant. So we are spending 54% on building up the military, but only uh, 6% on helping the people negatively affected by their service to this country. Yes. Right. The debt we owe, we can't, yeah. we're not repaying. Yeah. Now some so, other, some other numbers here just to give kind of a scope of this. Um, the United States defense spending is like I said, around $600 billion. China's is hovering around 150. They're the next highest. Then mm-hmm. Russia at around mm-hmm. uh, 70 to 80. Then the UK at about 50 billion. France, Japan, and Germany uh, about the mm-hmm. same level. So we are, I mean, five to six times greater than the next country that spends the most on military. Yes. And based on the average of other civilized nations, kind of civilized is the wrong word, like based on other nations that have the need for a standing military. Um, and even that is kind of a, a point that can be argued. I think mm-hmm. we spend a comically huge amount of money. We do. We do. And just also thinking about what we, what we've already spent on that's in surplus, right? So we have a huge cachet of weaponry. Sure. But may, may or not, may or may not be coming, becoming dated, but a lot of it that where the public is not even aware of. But yep. I would also say like post-World War II, maybe what you're seeing are, are now that's reflective of World War II since the Cold War is the diversification of who we consider our enemy to be, right? Cold War, it's like, if you're going after Cold War, it's very specific. It's a very specific place. They've got a specific uh, climate. You're going to be able to attack in X ways. But now when you're looking at a more globalized right? A more globalized enemy that could be anywhere that could be in the United States, even then I would assume that your, your spending would become so much more because you're trying to cover, you're trying to cover so much more of a defensive proposition. Now here is the interesting part though, Marie, mm. this is from a salon article called America arms dealer to the world. Okay. Um, oh, there goes that argument. Yeah. So, Salon. Um, from 2006 to 2010, there's a quote from this article. Mm-hmm. The U.S. accounted for nearly one third of the world's arms exports, 
easily surpassing a resurgent Russia in the Lords of War race. Despite a decline in global arms sales in 2010 due to recessionary <laughs> pressures, the U.S. increased its market share, accounting for a whopping 53% of the trade that year. Last year, the U.S. on pace the US, saw the U.S. on pace to deliver more than $46 billion in foreign arms sales. Who says America isn't number one anymore? So is um, that, and that's the government selling them not? I want to continue this. Right? No, no, okay, this, sorry, is, sorry, this, sorry. Is, this is the government and uh, industry. And pro- okay, right? okay, okay, okay. Um, I believe industry can only sell them through the military, though. Yes. Um, so, or through the government. For yes. a shopping list of our arms trades, try searching the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute database for arms exports and imports. It reveals that in 2010, the U.S. exported major conventional weapons to 62 countries, from <laughs> Afghanistan to Yemen, and weapons platforms ranging from F-15, F-16, and F-18 combat jets to M1 Abrams main battle tanks to Cobra attack helicopters sent to our Pakistani comrades to guided missiles in all flavors, colors, and sizes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, at least um, we're, we're egalitarian in that So the, uh, the Obama administration... Uh, tried to sell 11 billion in arms to Iraq, including mm-hmm. Abrams tanks, F-16 fighter bombers, 30 million or $30 billion in F-15 fighter jets to Saudi Arabia. Um, and that was completely uh, not opposed by Congress. So the challenge is that we are selling the weapons that are being used to fight us. Yes. We are, and the most interesting, but the, even the more frightening thing too is it's like, okay, so we're selling them because we need or we would like more money and also because they, they're becoming dated. So the, the stuff that we have coming up that we're, we've got cooking is probably even more frightening than anything that we're selling. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Which is even so, more terrifying. So in some ways then, there's a, there is a, there's, I would say, almost a bit. So I don't. Damn it, dude! I, don't I was, wa- I was about ready to write this whole thing off. It's just. I don't. Okay. I don't want to call. I don't want to call this one. Hmm. I don't want to call this one true, because it's not true, right? Well, because here's the thing: there is no international cabal at the top of all of this, right? There is no. I mean, there is no directed energy in my mind to selling this stuff. And the thing is, hmm. too, you know, if we're selling. Uh, if the if the plan is forever war, then selling arms to both sides is a pretty damn good way to do it. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, I I wonder how much of that actually includes sort of say the, um, I don't know, I don't know how much of it includes kind of I guess the whole the government or um how much of it includes other countries like you know it's it's an interesting yeah, argument well. and from my mind. In my mind, it is maybe this is just again kind of our political biases, but in my in my mind, this is much more about um, this is much more about individual corruption breeding a larger story of corruption or a larger swamp, let's call it right <laughs> in the politics mm-hmm. of America, as opposed to say a large conspiracy involving you know the subjugation of american citizens i think it's people being shitty making money off of being shitty to their fellow man i don't know i don't think it's like yeah i i I, I, even even dick cheney and stuff like i have a hard time like he is a bad person it would appear i don't know man yeah he's based on his based on his actions and stuff that's pretty tough but at the same time like 
do I think that there is a kind of, I guess, larger conspiracy role there? I'm very doubtful. No, I think it's it is more opportunist. It's more like my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? Until yeah. they're back to being my enemy. So we are going to fund and funnel weaponry into places to help subsidize uh, factions that fight against the enemy that we feel is the more, you know, is the worser of the two evils. Sure. Until until that well, you know, well-funded group that we thought we're going to be our friends turns out to not care for us as much and uses the weapons against us, which not happens to be so friendly a lot, which, yeah. you know, again, it's like, that's, that's, but we're not the only ones selling weaponry either. I mean, it's like weaponry is being sold by, by Russia. It's being sold by China, but I mean, we definitely are the largest to the point that you just, you know, talked about with the pie where we are the largest ones doing it. It's just, it is, it's so insidious. And the thing too, is it's like, even if you just like strip out, like let's strip out any kind of weaponry that's that's not nuclear, right? Or nuclear, sorry, nuclear. Um, then just to be safe. Um, I mean, think about how much of that we still have that we have not retired, that we are not, even when we, we stepped back from it, we still have enough to like, what, blow up the world, like some ridiculous number over and over again. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. It's like that stuff's just, you know, hanging out in yeah. Idaho or something. So actually, um, so actually one of the things that I thought is really interesting that is brought up a lot with these um with these discussions about say like national security and also uh weapons and stuff mm-hmm. is kind of I guess where the developments in weapons come from or almost as well mm-hmm. like so North Korea has been trying to make a nuclear weapon for decades. Yes. What the hell has taken them so long? Like, what is that process like? And obviously we can't get into it super detailed, right? No, but they got, they got much better at much faster over a very short amount of time. They did. Which is, you know, which is pretty interesting. It is very interesting now. And actually there's reports today that the reason that they said that they were uh, going to suspend testing for a while was actually them saving face because Mm. this, this last big earthquake actually, completely destroyed their research facility. Really? Um, yeah, that was actually reported huh. today. I saw it. Um, I saw it all over, you know, I saw it all over Reddit um, on <laughs> our news and stuff, but um, so now, who knows? I, was, I mean, if maybe, I was a good conspiracy theorist, I would say that was no earthquake. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that, well, actually that kind of gets into what I right? think our next episode should be on, which is like super mm, weapons, right? Super weapons and, and where we think super these things cyber weapons. From. Like Absolutely. the Olympic Games, which is one of my Stuxnet, which is my absolute favorite topic. Totally. Now, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. one cyber weapon that actually, Marie, you're doing a deep dive on is sonic weapons. Is the sonic weapon. Yes. The sonic so weapon. So that'll be my, on Marie's yes. new podcast. Uh, whatever, whatever remains. remains. And, and it's, it's so the cool. uh, sonic attack that, that supposedly happened recently in Havana, Cuba. Yeah. And was it truly a, was it truly a sonic attack? Or pretty. Was, it's pretty cool. It's a cool story. For sure. It's a cool story and it's it will be kind of interesting to dig into it. And I will be, of course, tapping, tapping my local scientists <laughs> for hypotheticals not to be taken into an engineering. We're not we will not be taking this into any kind of engineering actuality. So sure. everyone just breathe deep that we will not be having any kind of sonicry, sonic okay. weaponry. So let's to, mm-hmm. to close out this episode. Let's talk about nuclear proliferation. Like, like what, like, like literally like what is the challenge 
Can I just suggest one other thing though? Go ahead. We should talk about that haunted painting, dude. We, we should, should okay, we'll, that. We'll, we'll get to that at the very end. We'll get to the very end. Oh my God. All right. All right. Okay. We're going to, so we're going to close. Yeah. We're going to close with a nice light topic. We'll get nuclear some, proliferation and then haunted sparkling, paintings. Yeah. Some spark, sparkling bubble water. <laughs> and we'll talk about a little nuclear proliferation. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what, okay. So what do you think Marie is the stopgap in making an atomic weapon? What do you mean by stuff? Like, how do we, how do we pull back and how like, do we get why rid can't, of them? Why can't North Korea do it? Um, North Korea can't do it because they can't get enough plutonium to, um, to enrich would be my guess. They can't enrich it. And it, the, the process of enriching it takes a certain amount of energy and time, but they can't, they don't have the, uh, the wherewithal for. Okay. Actually, Damn. the reason North Korea mm-hmm. doesn't have a nuclear bomb yet, they have the material. They have the ability to centrifuge, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fizzle nuclear weaponry stuff. Mm-hmm. The challenge is the creation of a guidance system that allows it to be put onto an inter- intercontinental ballistic missile. Really? They can't it's, get the, uh, it's, the it's drone. Li- it's yeah, purpose, it's yeah? it's literally the difficulty in aiming and creating a computer program uh, like a sensor array and stuff on the weapon that can allow it to actually hit land huh. from far enough away. And we know that for certain. That's a, that's a fact. Uh, well, I mean, we know that we, we know that all of their missiles miss their targets. <laughs> and, oh yes. And, and sometimes True. never get off the landing pad and stuff. Right. So that's, yes. I mean, this is supposition on my part in some ways, mm-hmm. but uh, based mm-hmm. on all the reports that I've seen, it is their inability to get it onto a intercontinental ballistic missile missile or ICBM. Mm, mm, mm. Right. Interesting. Now, in terms of like, so you always, you often hear about centrifuges and nuclear centrifuges and stuff, right? You'll yes. hear about that on the news. What that is is it's literally the method to basically separate out the uh, the radioactive isotope that you want from the non-radioactive one. It's a big right? spinning device. But it that super but, fast. But the chemistry to get from like a uranium ore to a usable final product in a weapon is a closely guarded secret, right? Yes. You can imagine, right? Yeah. You don't want that, you know, on top of that, Seven Eleven doing that shit, right? On top of that, the detonation mechanism is also evidently a super difficult kind of like deeply guarded secret, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. But the thing is like, that's the thing though. We never think about these mechanics of say weaponry in that sense of, Those are all, again, tying it back to the beginning, those are all small scientific problems or engineering problems that were Mm -hmm. probably solved by a student and a professor someplace, right? Doing some other kind of work. Well-meaning, well-meaning MIT grads, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same kind of technology that can be used to, to, uh, you know, pick pick a pixel on an image or something Mm -hmm. can be used to pick a spot on the ground. If the image that they're analyzing is a GPS radar overlay, right? Yes. Like these are small advancements that end up making, you know, the difference between, um, you know, a dirty bomb, which mm-hmm. uh, for those that don't know what a dirty bomb is, basically it's just a conventional weapon with radioactive material within it. So basically it, um, it, it, it just causes, causes the hell out of everything. Yeah. It it basically poisons the environment with radiation. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that issue, but then there's also the issue of, of these 
So, so it makes a difference between a dirty bomb, which can hurt a lot of people, but it's kind of a more of a long-term thing Mm -hmm. versus an atomic weapon, which is like a instantaneous devastation. Yes. Which would take out everything in X amount of radius. Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's really, it's really, uh, you know, it's, Mm. it's fascinating. Some of these, uh, some of these ideas. So, and Anyways. we haven't, we're not doing any of that. That's the other thing <laughs> that, we need to, that we need to make sure that our listening, our listening public knows Chris and I are not doing that. No, we don't have any ideas about that. We don't have anything in any garages or anything. So no, rest assured. Rest assured. I don't even have a garage. No, I do, but it's got some haunted painting in it. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be giving that thing nukes. Of course not. Okay. Let's talk about this haunted painting, Marie. Dude. Well, I think we have to acknowledge that like, I know I freaked out a little bit about this the last time, but I, that was before I had seen said painting that you had freaked out about. From it is hilarious. Okay. It is hilarious to me that, okay. Everyone, <laughs> everyone that I told the story to <laughs> thought I was being facetious. I was making it up when I said it is the painting, right? Well, everyone just, thought, everyone yeah. thought I was kidding or like I misremembered or whatever. Even Katie was like, that's not the same painting. And then my mom <laughs> sends the text. I forwarded over to you and you're oh, like Dora, yeah. Freaking out on Twitter. It is well, the exact it's it's not the exact same painting. It's the same scene for sure. It is just a wider perspective. Yeah, mine is right. like mine is like if you took so Chris is, is sort of a longer triangle or sort of longer rectangle. Mine is a closer crop of what of his scene. But it's it's the same scene. And that's what is so crazy about it. So we we did do some due diligence and some research after I freaked out. And I apologize to Chris that I didn't believe him adequately enough when he. I know what out. I saw. I know what I, I saw. Was, I, was, I, was, I was like, whatever, me. I was like, what, how is that? But so these paintings and it's it's signed by G. Whitman. And G. Whitman is, again, sort of this catch all name that was used in what is called like art mills. And so you would have people going in and, and basically, you know, with any kind of aptitude for painting, going in and painting over and over and over and just signing this one person's name. And they would be sold in airports and they'd be sold in sort of like strip malls and, you know, in um, interior designers use them sometimes. And they were especially prevalent, I would say like late seventies and eighties. That's so that weird. Sweet spot, right? Now, what, what's weird is so the artist that we have, which is Whitman, tops, like during that time frame, they think maybe between eight and 10,000 paintings were generated with this person's name. However, the majority of these paintings were not that color scheme. They were of, I want to say like mountains and like pretty snows, or it would be springtime and there would be a cabin and it was a much more, a less sort of expressionistic um, look and feel. Um, and if you if you Google images by G. Whitman, you'll see that there's the, the the huge majority of them are sort of these benign looking platitudes that are awful, and a lot of them too are prints. So they move from oil to prints. However, what we both have, which is even, what trips me out more, and which really tripped out. Uh, Scott and Forrest is their oil paintings. That's an oil painting. That's not, that's done by hand, right? That's done by hand. And it is a scene and a color that is not as prevalent as, and I don't have the stats because 
you know, I just don't have them, but they weren't as popular or seemingly highly sold as the rest of his oeuvre of crap. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's crap. It's like a good painting. Well, it's a good, it's, it is, it is a painting. I'm going to give you that. It is an oil painting. If and I could paint like that, I'd be, I'd be fucking, I would be, I would be so it's happy. It's a bad painting. But I mean, I would say it's, the weird thing is like, and again, the thing that trips me out is I, so we decided, hey, for, you know, for haunted paintings, we're going to do this and we'll, I'll go find a painting and we'll, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, um, kind of kitch it up a little bit and then we'll auction it or we'll, we won't auction, we'll raffle it off to, to our Patreon members, which I still think is a very cool idea and I'm really excited to do it. So I went in looking for a painting, right? So I went into a store that I've never been into before that I was driving by and I was like, oh, I bet, you know, it's a thrift store and it's sort of the tchotchke thrift store. So I bet they've got some crappy painting that's not too much money that we can, you know, spooky it up a little bit. And I walk in and like, I'm looking around and that's the painting I want. I was like, that's it. That's the painting right there. It's perfect price range, small enough. It's still a little, it's a little off putting as is. And that, and again, like this is, this is at least two decades later, a completely different, a complete the, the polar, not polar opposite, but the opposite side of the country. And I found the exact same painting that scared you as a kid. It's really weird. That's some weird shit. It's really me, weird. That's some weird shit. And I, I mean, again, it's like, I don't know enough about it to go for stats on what the stats on that would be if like that would be more likely to happen than not. But it's like, it would be different if I was buying it new, yeah. right? Or if I was looking for a print and I would, and I'd be like, oh, we both found the same print of, you know, Alf from the eighties or some shit like that. But we found it like it's an oil painting that was done. Yeah. So it's still in my garage because I'm not touching it. So Patreon members, some lucky, some lucky, uh, some lucky stiff out there is gonna is gonna get the painting and i've you know again added some embellishment to it just to make it just a tiny bit more spooky which actually may make it less spooky knowing what we know now about this i know seriously i was i was thinking about that when Mm because like the thing is too i didn't know i didn't know right away if it was when you said that it was the painting and you sent it to me i started freaking out and i was like oh my god it's the same painting but Uh i wasn't like i wasn't 100 percent certain right until my mom sent the text back like the next day well so where did she find where you you gotta ask door where she found this stuff man where well, did that well, it thing was, come it's, from? it's not my mom it's, my, it's no. not my mom's painting it's my uncle and aunt's painting but they, she must know they could she could ask no suppose well according mm-hmm. to my mom unless i'm unless i'm thinking of a different painting so we actually have a uh, we have a painting I think I'm getting this mixed up. We have a painting in my mom's house that is mm-hmm. really cool. And it's like this like shellacked on. It's like painted with um, it's like painted with a, a trough, a, a trough, yeah, I yeah. guess. What's the, you're right. It's uh, painted. Yeah, no, it's it's a, painted. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah, like yeah. it's like, you know, it's palette. not. It's a yeah, palette. It's interesting. Yeah. It's not it's not like a painting. Like, it's not like a, a painting, a traditional style painting or anything. It's like blobs of paint stuck onto this thing to make like a really. Uh, really like brutally expressionist picture of something, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think she has two of them. I want to say I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. she bought those from some guy in like Central Park or something. Like she mm-hmm. bought them, like he was painting them, and she bought them. Okay. Um, that's I not have, these, but that's not the yeah. same painting. 
No. I don't know where. I don't know where. Uh, where my, oh my just, god! This isn't what? even the only scary painting. This isn't even the only scary painting we have. My oh, mom. Dude. My mom was funny. She was like, "I was really ha- glad you didn't say this other story about mm-hmm. this other painting." She did. My mom. My mom used to. My mom still is a is a artistically inclined. And my mom mm-hmm. has done some. Mm-hmm. I think. I think very beautiful paintings. Um, so she, is my mom. My mom was a painter too. Oh yeah, 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 dude. I, so. It's uh, getting weird. God, it's so weird. It's so weird. So, um, so one of the paintings though that my mom, one of the paintings my mom has is this. She did it in like I think she did it in like high school or something. But it's this like it's this really scary portrait of herself as like a kid, uh, <laughs> and it looks like it looks like a black eyed kid almost. The painting oh that God. she did of herself. <laughs> it's like. She brought it home. She brought it home. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so scary. Dude, we're going to have to take pictures of our mom's art and put it up. Seriously, we're going to have to. My mom was really she is and was a really good artist. And sure. It's like she's done some kind of spooky ass shit, too, where you're like, oh, seriously, what's up with that? Um. But I would she I hope she takes a picture of the back of it because then we could actually find the year too and where it was sold. Cause that's, that's Oh the really? Okay. Thinking. Yeah, no, she yeah. can totally do that. I mean, she's at my uncle's house like every other weekend. And find um, out where they She basically it has a bedroom there at this point. Yeah, that's yeah, super interesting. And I'll then have to... maybe and then maybe just burn it. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out. <laughs> well, what's so what is weird is the one that they have is definitely oil. It's uh-huh. definitely on canvas. Yeah. I feel like they have another uh, I, I can't remember if this is me just like misremembering or not. I feel like they have a very similar one done in like the same style, but it's like a, of a different scene. And if you're, mm-hmm. if what you're saying, I mean, you're like, if, if it is like a mass produced kind of painting or whatever, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, this is in my mind, similar to like, you go into like a bed, bath and beyond and you see a cool painting. That's, that's like painted there. You buy it for like a hundred bucks and you know what I mean? Like it yes. is possible that a lot of these were made. But if it's if even if in total they did yes. ten thousand, yes, total that's not, painting. That's yes. not that many. That's not that. That's well, like that's, that's the other thing too is think about the time because with Bed Bath and Beyond they wouldn't be doing an oil. They would be doing they would be doing a printing process that looks like oil paint, right? They wouldn't be actually painting. These paintings were actually physically painted. I think because it's from the it's from the nineteen seventies, even the eighties. They didn't have printing technology that would replicate the look of paint. So I'm just looking at it right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. If it was 10,000 paintings and let's say there's 7 million people in the United States, mm-hmm. that's like mm-hmm. a 0.14% chance. Dude, it's just astronomical. That, I mean, not, not chance so, necessarily, but that's like, that's point. So 10,000 out of 7 million is 0.14%. It's just that's, crazy ass that's odds. Nuts. It's so and it's weird. less than that because that's all of the paintings that this that were signed with Whitman that were signed by this particular quote unquote artist. Ah, it's so weird. All right. Anyways, yeah, so that's- I'm now yeah, great. So hey, yeah, beloved listener, beloved listener and Patreon members, if you would like a chance to own said piece of art. By all means, we're going to be doing, when should we do this, Raphael? We should, because uh, we got to get rid of this thing, because I'm now, like, the more and more we talk about it, and the more and more I'll get texts from, like, people that are like, so tell me the story, but I'm like, I don't want to talk about the GDN painting. No, I don't want to talk about the painting anymore. Let's say, like, another, let's say another two weeks. 
Yes. So we got two more episodes, then we'll do the mm-hmm. raffle, and we'll mm-hmm. announce the winner on the raff on the episode. So three episodes from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So mm-hmm. if you would like to enter the raffle, uh, it's one dollar on Patreon to enter, and mm-hmm. uh, you can sign up and then quit immediately. <laughs> That's totally cool with us. And we will uh, we will enter you in for the raffle. I'm about ready to just pay people to take it away. I know, right? <laughs> so actually, speaking of Patreon, we got a bunch of patrons this week to say thank you to. Sweet. We got uh, we got Molly Dude. Townsend. Thank you they so all, much. They all want the painting. Telling you, man, Chris McClay. Spooky. Thank, thank you, Chris. You thank so you, much. Molly. We got Jill Kudza. Thank you so much. I'm saying that right. C-O-Z-Z-A. I'm saying that right. And then I think so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, She's super cool. All these people are cool. I've reached out and talked to all of them. They are super awesome. Um, Molly is a scientist right now. Chris reached out with a really cool photo. Jill has just been super supportive on Twitter. Generally, Jeremy Todd Sturgill, totally kick-ass artist. He's the guy that drew the photo or drew the picture of me (laughs) fighting the giant squid. Uh, he is awesome. We love his art for sure. Woo! Um, and, yes, we uh, love and we love artists. We, we sure do. Love these. Like when people are sending this stuff, it's just like I get such a kick out of it. And actually, speaking of that, we have uh, we have another artist that actually reached out to reach out to us on Instagram, who sent some awesome stuff. Uh, Brett Manning. Uh, so it's Brett Manning art. Um, I'll 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 shoot a, f- a link over onto the Instagram so people can follow it or whatever. She does some really cool uh, drawings and and prints and stuff and like stickers of cryptids and fairies and spooky monsters and just mm-hmm. like it's so cool. Go mm-hmm. check it out. She sent over some cool stuff. Um, so we're sending her back a whole bunch of cool stuff as well. Awesome. So uh, so that's it. So thank you so much for supporting the show Ooh, on Patreon. I have one more. I have one more really good one. So. Uh, reach out on Facebook from a Robert Demi who came up with the funniest sayings, uh, tweeting my joy of Team Giant Squid Facebook friends, mollusks, celef- uh, cellopods, cuttlefish. They're friends of the pod. Get it? Cellopods? Oh, friends of the that's pod? so cool. I we should call like, them cephal- cephalopods. Yeah, we should call them cephalopods. Because we're basically ripping off, uh, you know, crooked media. But whatever. That's fine, whatever. Fine. Yeah, fine. Listen, it's only general. ripping off until they sign us. <laughs> Friends right. of the pod. Love that. So, uh, yes, thank you so much. We love hearing from you. We love it. All right. Have a good night. Night. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. 
Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.